Hello and welcome to this episode of Primarily Context-Based. This podcast is a collaboration between CTOcraft and Skillerwell and it was inspired by the Q&A site Stack Overflow. On Stack Overflow, questions have a single right answer and questions can be closed and archived because they're primarily opinion-based. Well, we think that the most interesting questions don't have a single right answer and they are primarily context-based. And in this podcast, we're going to take one of those questions, talk about a range of answers and the context that makes them appropriate. My name's Howell Carver. I'm the CEO of Skiller Well. We do deep coaching for tech teams, which is individually personalized, hands-on sessions with a live expert delivered remotely in one-hour chunks. I've been a CTO and I've run tech leader dinners for the last three or more years. I've also been a CTO coach. And one of the things I've seen is that the same questions come up again and again, but with different answers every time because context is critical. Today, we're going to be talking about the question, how do I grow a culture of empowerment? And I'm thrilled to be joined by Mary Williams. Mary, hi, please introduce yourself. Hi, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Mary Williams. I'm an experienced CTO. I'm mostly focused on scaling businesses. And I'm also the chair of the Lead Dev Conference, which is a leadership conference disguised as a technology conference that runs (laughs) in uh, Berlin, London, uh, San Francisco, and New York. Awesome. And today we're going to talk about how do I grow a culture of empowerment? And I wanted to start by talking about the idea of work culture at all, because I've sometimes found that people have a resistance to the idea of thinking about culture and looking for a culture fit when you hire for people. Do you think talking about culture is inherently a bad thing or is it more nuanced than that? I don't think it's a bad thing. Well, I I think a couple of things. Kate Houston has famously said that um, engineers don't hate all process, but they think of good process as culture, uh, which is one perspective on culture that I quite like. Um, And I think we also confuse culture and values. I think it's really important to find people who fit with your values, with the things that you you fundamentally believe and, and hold really dear to your heart. But I think looking for culture fit is a bit of a mistake. Looking for how someone can add to your culture, I think, is more valuable and results less in that kind of would I enjoy going down the pub with this person uh, assessment of someone and more of a kind of like what will they bring to the team that we don't already have. And so I tend to coach people to look for a fit with values, but then an add to culture. Uh, and I've totally stolen the culture ad thing from uh, from someone, but I'll be honest that I can't remember off the top of my head who it is. Um, <laughs> I, I just want to be clear that I haven't invented that. <laughs> it's something I've missed. <laughs> I think I've read someone talking about culture ad um, too, but I also can't remember who. Can you describe what a culture of empowerment looks like? How do you know whether you, you have one or not? has a few different things. It has a level of autonomy, which and when I talk about autonomy, I don't mean everybody gets to wake up in the morning and do whatever the hell they feel like. I think that autonomy within a work context is feeling like your opinions matter, that your voice is heard and that you get some say in doing the right thing and doing the thing right. Um, so some elements of kind of autonomy and mastery all mixed up together there. Um, and I think that's one angle on empowerment is how autonomous does a does a team usually get to be rather than an individual. Um, I think the other side of it is um, a feeling of ownership. And I think you see that exhibited by teams when they feel like they are really accountable for the product that they own, for the systems that they build, that they feel like they build and run something. and they're end-to-end accountable for for that thing Um, and I think the combination of of autonomy and ownership 
leads to empowerment. It leads to people feeling like they their voice is heard, um, they they have a say, and they're able to display real ownership of the the work that they do. Mm. And just to play devil's ad- advocate for a moment, does it matter if we don't have an an empowerment culture? Will we get the same kind of results, same kind of outcomes, the same kind of employee engagement in in their work? I think it depends how how opposites to an empowerment culture you have. If you have a culture of disempowerment, I'm pretty sure that is a negative thing for, from a business results point of view. But there are plenty of cultures that aren't particularly empowering, um, but avoid being disempowering that, that I think do okay. Um, I think, though, in the incredible competition for, for really major talent that we have, Empowerment is something a lot of people are looking for. And so if the best people are going to gravitate towards those cultures where they do feel that they've got autonomy and they can display ownership, then I think that has a real impact on other folks that may not be able to get as good talent as they they might have done otherwise if they'd focused a bit more on, on empowerment. I think empowerment can also sometimes be used as a proxy for engagement. And there's there's a load of science around how much engagement in work matters and people feeling engaged day to day, um, positively impacting business results. You mentioned the idea of accountability there, Mary. Do you ever find resistance to that, that people are nervous of becoming accountable? For something absolutely i think ownership and accountability are both quite scary things they they mean really putting all of yourself into the work that you're doing and um you know owning it feeling like you're on the hook for it you know that i think that it can come across negatively in some cultures where you you hear people talking about one throat to choke which i hate as a as a oh. uh, as a phrase. Oh, I've never heard um, that before. That's oh, horrible. It's, it's very common, unfortunately. But I, but I think that accountability comes very naturally with ownership. And if if we think that ownership is is positive, then ownership without accountability is almost uh, nonsensical, right? How could you truly own something if you don't feel accountable for making sure that it, you know, runs well if it's a system or meets customer needs if it's a product? Yeah, completely. I think that one of the nice things about being in a position of leadership is exactly that sense of empowerment. And so when you talk about a a culture of empowerment, one of the things I feel is it's about giving other people who are in my organization that are sort of reporting to me, giving them the same things that I like about my job and, you know, attract me to that. I don't know if you, you feel the same way about that. I absolutely do. And I, I, I actually think a lot of modern leadership is really about creating the conditions for success, creating an environment in which great work can happen and which people can be engaged and happy and display ownership and be accountable and, you know, be empowered. Um, and, you know, when we talk about empowerment, like, power is fundamental in that in that term and in that concept right um and if the alternative is power imbalances we know that those don't work out well <laughs> we've seen that mm-hmm. uh, that happen a lot and so i think there's something about equality um inherent in a culture of empowerment as well it's saying everybody's got something really important to contribute and to bring here let's focus on how we get that um, to be displayed and to be um, enabled for everybody rather than power being kind of concentrated in just a small set of people who then are very directive with everyone around them. Mm. One of the things I've, I've come across when doing kind of research and reading around behavioral structures in organizations 
is the idea that different organizations are run according to different models. And for some reason, these have been assigned colors. I never really understood the the color system behind (laughs) it. The kind of modern empowered organization is often referred to as a teal color, somewhere between blue and green. And then you see a green being used for very kind of flat hierarchy free organizations often in kind of philanthropic things like maybe in charities where everyone is joined by a mission or in in like bands of people right music bands where no one wants to kind of be above anyone else as opposed to red organizational structures which are very hierarchical and strict and top down and you still see that in often in things like the army and in the armed forces where you have a need for Well, I I believe you have a need. I don't have any direct experience of this, but I'm told that you have a need for orders to be followed precisely and exactly. All of which is to say, do you think there are places where a culture of empowerment probably isn't the right answer? I I think it depends on, on something that you alluded to, which is how closely people are aligned to the mission or the purpose of the organization. So um, something that a lot of startups get frustrated by is when they're very small, everybody knows everybody, and they all trust each other to make decisions. And past a certain size, and for some organizations, it's like 150 people, for some it's a 1000, past a certain point, the kind of just be sensible stops being a good enough rule. Um, and And I think that's a lot of what this comes down to is, where do you have to give rules and regulations versus just having a purpose and having some ways of getting things done and trusting that people are going to to do the right thing. Because I think empowerment is fundamentally about trust, right? It's about saying, mm-hmm. I'm going to trust that you're going to do the best work. You're going to make good decisions. You're going to, um, you're going to treat your colleagues well. And if you aren't aligned on what the purpose is, what the vision is, what the mission is for the organization, then you're definitely not going to make similar decisions or decisions that are in line with each other, right? If you think, if you've got one person who thinks that you're trying to change the world and another one who thinks you're just trying to make money, on a number of smaller decisions, they're going to make quite different choices. And I think that's where people become more directive or more rules focused or more, mm-hmm. you know, process focused and and start to shut things down and make things much more constrained is because they stop trusting that good decisions will be made and i really i find this a really fascinating area because it it uh, overlaps with diversity equity and inclusion in an interesting way because one way you can be sure that you're going to get consistent decisions that you agree with is to have people who are very similar to yourself So if you believe in the same thing and you have all the same social norms and background and everything else, Mm. then it's very easy to get very similar decisions out of a group of people. But we know that those very homogenous groups are not the highest performing groups. They're not the most innovative. They're not the most profitable. They're not the the most likely to, to solve real problems. But with that diversity of experience and diversity of background comes different norms about what is okay and what isn't, right? If you've, uh, I've seen this a couple of times with something as simple as expenses, right? If you have, uh, if you're in a a scale up, for instance, and you've got some people who started with the startup, they've lived through the lean times, they treat every penny as if it's their own. And then somebody who's come from a bigger organization who goes, well, yeah, when I'm on business travel, I'm not going to stay in a hostel because you're asking me to be away from my family. I'm 
trying to get work done and it won't necessarily be good work if I'm not rested and and okay. Now, both of those people are, um, you know, the person who chooses to stay in the hostel and the person who chooses a hotel, they're both making a perfectly rational decision given the experience they've had to that point. But it can be interpreted as the by the person staying in the hostel that the person staying in the hotel isn't taking the, the mission seriously or isn't treating the company's money as if it's their own. You know, I don't think that either of those people is wrong. They're just coming from a different set of social norms in the same way as, you know, if you grew up middle class, you're much more likely um, to, to determine that, you know, the cost of a hotel for the night is reasonable than if you're like me, like working class. I'd never stayed in a hotel at all until I worked at a big company. And then it was, you know, like this magical experience for me of of staying in places that, that I never would have done before. And this is all to say, it doesn't really matter. The like hostel versus hotel thing doesn't matter, but it's just one really simple example where you can have people act very rationally and in line with their own values. But the background that they have being different means that they can end up offending each other or upsetting each other and their different decision making is more a factor of their background and their experience to that point than any lack of alignment to the to the mission but it might not be seen that way by everybody involved that's actually where i think empowerment gets eaten away at it's not on the big topics like what's our focus for this quarter or how do we develop this product it's on the small things it's rules lawyering about expenses or holidays or how people book time off or those kind of things and it's often just a reaction to there not being um, a consistent set of expectations and norms for, for, for people. But knowing that really diverse teams are much higher performing, we have to find a way to sort of navigate this. We have to get to the point of being able to go, this is what's okay and this is what this is what isn't. And sometimes that's down to values, sometimes that's down to these kind of norms. It's almost always the wrong thing to get really, really directive about it. But it is what a lot of places resort to on small topics and large. It sounds like part of a culture of empowerment then is as a leader being willing to be challenged and being willing to told that the decision you would have made is maybe not wrong but not absolutely correct yes and i think part part of a culture of empowerment is fundamentally letting the impact of work matter more than the method of work now, that doesn't mean everybody gets to be a complete bastard um, in how they operate. There is a certain level of values and, and, and people acting in, in, uh, in concert with, with their values that matters. But if you value the outcomes of work rather than the specifics of how it gets done, that makes you more scalable as a leader and as a manager because it lets you coach people on what they need to achieve at the end rather than just tell them how you would do it exactly. And this comes up as a, a really important topic when we, when uh, to bring it back to diversity, equity, inclusion again, um, Lara Hogan's famously written about how women are, um, in tech are now over-mentored, but it's not making any difference to how well they're progressing. So you have a whole bunch of people who've now got mentors, but it's not helping them get ahead in their careers. And my personal hypothesis for that is a lot of the people mentoring don't realize that when they give advice, it's not safe advice to take for somebody who's very different from them. If you have, you know, there's been numerous studies where if you have the same case study and you just change the gender pronouns, so, you know, one's about Jack and one's about Jill, 
the same descriptions of leadership behaviors. People think Jack's a great leader who anybody would want to follow into battle. And Jill gets the job done, but bit of a bitch. And that fundamental difference in how things are, are experienced, and that's just gender. Like, let's not get started about how people of color are um, much less likely to be given the benefit of the doubt, how queer folks are not taken this seriously because of the way that they present. There's a whole bunch of the of these things. And so if somebody's giving um, mentoring advice in a way that's very prescriptive about how you do something, rather than coaching someone to figure out their own way of achieving something, then that's very disempowering. And so I, th- I think that part of being in creating this culture of empowerment is also accepting that there's multiple routes to success, whether that's at the like individual bit of work level or at the career level. And you have to show that there are multiple routes to success. People can be themselves and be successful um, in a load of different ways in order for there to be an equitable uh, environment in which loads of different people can succeed. One of the things you, you mentioned there that you just you touched on was about coaching the people that are reporting to you to help them empower the people who are reporting to them. Can you talk a bit about how that works? Because part of this question, right, is about how you grow and scale that culture of empowerment. How do you help others to be empowering? The fundamental missing skill that I've found is is the skill of coaching. And if, if I can do a little tiny bit of definition just for the purposes of the conversation, I don't, you know, insist everybody goes out and uses these definitions in the broader world. But I would say mentoring is giving someone advice based on your own experiences, on what wisdom you may have gained over the years. But coaching is helping someone to find their own way forward based on what they already know, rather than giving them advice or telling them what what to do. And that technique and capability of coaching, of helping someone to find their own route through a problem, a piece of work, a career, that's not something that we necessarily teach particularly well in technology. Um, as, a, as an industry as a whole. And so one of the key um, step ups that happens when, particularly when managers become uh, managers of other managers, if they haven't learned coaching by that point, they bomb in a really, really major way. Because if you train your people that the only correct way is your way, then you're basically training them that they have to come and ask you what to do at every juncture, because if they if they accidentally don't do exactly what you would do, then they're wrong. And if you train your people that they've got to come and check with you so that they do exactly what you do every time, that's inherently unscalable, right? It makes you mm. a distinct and very real bottleneck, and it's incredibly disempowering for people because they aren't allowed to find their own route through. They're not allowed to solve the problem in a unique way. They have to just do it the way the boss would do it. Um, and so I, I, I think that skill of coaching, of helping someone to figure out how to perform best based on what they know, what on their own skills, their own knowledge, is really, really fundamental. And we have a lot of misconceptions about coaching. We tend to believe that you have to be more experienced, you have to be better at the thing in order to coach someone. But very bluntly, if you look at sports, the coaches are often not better players than the players on the field. Andy Murray's tennis coach is not a better tennis player than he is, I'm pretty sure. And actually, you know, 
it's quite interesting to see who becomes a great coach. It's often not the best players. It's often the players mm. who maybe had to work a little bit harder in order to succeed. And so teaching that skill of coaching, and there's you can go as, as broad or as deep as you like into the skill of coaching, but that's the thing that I think predicts success at higher management levels and at larger team sizes, because it's inherently unscalable to be this bottleneck that says, come and ask me what to do, because if you don't do exactly what I would do, then you're doing it wrong. Mm, super interesting. And then as you grow, do you have tips for how you can monitor and measure that you are maintaining your your culture of empowerment? How, how can you know that it's happening? I think that there's a few things that I would look for. How often do ideas come up from grassroots level? But how often does somebody come and say, we know that X is the strategy and you were expecting us to do Y, but we think Z would be a better idea. Like how, how likely is it that somebody at any level in the organization feels that they can come and share a good idea? How often does a manager get surprised by the solution that somebody comes to or the method that they get there? And I think that there's also some good questions you can ask in your kind of employee engagement survey, whether, you know, whether that's something as regular like, like Pecon does or, or a less regular thing like some of the other solutions tend to do. But there's a bunch of questions that HR professionals have spent years researching um, that are going to be much better than what I can come up with on the, on the fly. But there are definitely questions in those kind of employee engagement surveys that relate to empowerment, that relate to whether somebody feels like their ideas are listened to, their opinion matters, that other people care about the quality of the work the same way that they do. Um, and I think that you want to measure both things. You, you, want, you want observability. <laughs> in 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 people right you want you want blogging mm. and alerting <laughs> you want to, to notice how often good things are happening but you also want to have a way of knowing when something really bad happens um really disempowering happens you want to be able to see that and deal with it rather than have it um wait too long to to, to be dealt with and often the the alert that's needed is on micromanagement so when people feel like they're being micromanaged, when they're being told exactly what to do and exactly how to do it on every aspect of their job, that's incredibly disempowering. And that's probably the main mm. thing to watch out for. But there's a tendency, particularly with new managers, to flip-flop between being overly micromanagey, like tell people what to do and exactly how, or being absent completely. Um, and actually, there's uh, there's something called situational leadership. I call it the clue skills matrix, where you know what somebody needs is different depending on whether they know what they're trying to achieve and whether they have the skills and experience and knowledge to to achieve it. And people only need teaching; they only need to be told what to do and how to do it when they lack understanding of the direction and the you know the purpose, and they lack the skills and knowledge. If somebody has the everything that they need, then they still need a manager to be a bulldozer and a cheerleader, right? They, they've got to get stuff, get barriers out of their way and tell them when they're great. Like you need positive reinforcement to, to see those good behaviors continue. But the more interesting thing is often people either lack some of the skills or knowledge or they lack the, the direction. And if somebody has all the skills and knowledge, but they've got to figure out what direction to go in, then that's when coaching is appropriate. And when somebody has 
you know, the vision or the direction that they want to go in, but they're lacking some skills or knowledge or capacity, that's when you either, you know, pair them up with someone who's got the, the knowledge or put them on a learning plan so that they develop those skills and, and, and that experience over time. Um, and it's much more likely that somebody's in the quadrant where they're they're lacking skills and experience or the quadrant where they're lacking direction than it is that they're in the kind of tell me exactly what to do and how to do it or the or the i've got everything i need um quadrant of the sorry every i think every matrix uh, every management discussion eventually comes down to a matrix diagram and this is the <laughs> the one for <laughs> for this particular conversation absolutely with the one exception of the um, known knowns, known unknowns, and unknown unknowns. Um, no one ever talks about the unknown knowns, and it's, it's very frustrating. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's a topic that's really close to, to my heart, of course, because, you know, Skill or Whale, we're all about giving people like the, the skills and the, the knowledge that they need to, to do their work well. How do you go about giving people those opportunities to excel at scale, how do you make sure that people are self-aware enough as well to know what they don't know and know what skills they don't have? I think a lot of people do know, and it's creating the environment in which they can be honest about it without risking themselves. So I, th- I think there's a lot of the time people know what they're capable of and they know what they understand and what they don't. And then the role of the manager or leader is to make it safe to be honest. And I think you do that by being honest in your, about yourself, about where you're still learning, by visibly learning in front of other people, admitting when you're wrong, admitting when you didn't do something well enough or didn't have enough knowledge at, at that point. I think there's a different problem where somebody is overconfident and thinks that they have skills or experience or knowledge that they don't actually have. And then it's about making it safe to fail. And, mm. and I don't mean that all failure is safe forever, but you can ensure somebody isn't, you know, driving off the end of a cliff quite easily and still help them have that adrenaline rush of getting close to the edge of the cliff and realising that maybe they haven't got the driving skills that they need, if I take the analogy a little too far, possibly. Um, and, and I think there's an art to both of those things. There's an art to creating an environment in which people can be honest that they that they don't always know and there's an art to helping set up situations so somebody can get it wrong and learn from that without destroying their career um and i think there's a whole bunch of times where people are going to learn best by trying and messing it up and that's okay we often learn those lessons and take the most to heart when we've tried and failed um versus when we're just you know, there's not a huge amount of learning in just getting it right all the time. There's some positive reinforcement, but, you know, you hear people all the time say that when they learned the most was when they when they got it wrong, when they failed. Um, and creating those opportunities for learning and growth and making it safe, safe enough to try something and fail is some of the art of, of, of managing, I think, is judging how, how best to set those kind of situations up. And you can make it safer to, to try and fail by giving someone a mentor so that they help them with advice at the point they're about to go do something career destroying. Uh, you can just do regular check-ins. You can ask someone to share their plan before they execute. There's a whole plethora of ways that you can add some safety rails um, to, to folks who maybe are overconfident. Um, but in my experience, it's much more common that people are lacking in confidence, even when they 
should trust themselves more. And there mm. again, I, I know I possibly sound like a bit of a uh, advert for coaching, but if you coach people and they achieve the outcome in their own way, then over time that scales really well because they start to self-coach. They stop coming to you and going, hey, boss, what should I do? And start come, coming saying, this is what I think I should do. Do you have any watch outs for me? Is there anything I haven't thought of? And just that change in people start, starting to bring a plan rather than bring a question is a real confidence booster. Um, mm. We talk a lot about imposter syndrome in, in, in technology and people worried that they're going to be found out any moment. And I think a lot of that's because we aren't great at coaching. We aren't great at helping someone realize that they did achieve what they set out to. They did it their own way. And they managed to find a way through that wasn't just exactly what their boss would have done. And celebrating those moments is important and really helps to combat lack of confidence or um, uh, that kind of imposter syndrome or, or similar. Mm. Mary, can you tell us about some times when you've seen these ideas and growing a culture of empowerment or not immediately maybe go to plan and maybe also when it has gone really well, either around that question of psychological safety and helping people grow and escape imposter syndrome or generally about scaling the culture of empowerment? I actually had a, an example of this quite early in my own career where I got a load of feedback that that I was too direct, basically, and, and, and that I was, I was being too blunt. But the way the feedback was given, it sounded a lot like, could you be less South African and less, and less butch, please? And I was like, I don't know how to stop being gay or South African. I, I'm not sure how to achieve that. And oh, I had an amazing uh, director at the time, a woman called Michelle Hughes, who's now very, very, very senior at, at Procter & Gamble. Um, and she happened to also be a working class uh, kid and she, she was Glaswegian, which is also quite a direct culture. And she took me to one side and said, what you're not hearing is people think you're trying to make them feel stupid when you jump in with the solution so quickly, when you go straight to an answer. That's what we're trying to give you feedback on is it doesn't feel collaborative. It doesn't feel like you're taking anybody on the journey with you. You're just trying to give the correct answer immediately. And without any of the context or the influencing, it's not successful. And so that was a, a realization for myself that I was disempowering other people in the room completely accidentally because I was like, I have the right answer. Let me give the right answer. And not realizing that like walking people through the solution, walking people through the problem was a really important part of the um, kind of problem solving activity that we were undertaking. Um, and so that was probably one of the, the times that I was, I got, I got feedback in a way that was very disempowering to me, but about how I was disempowering other people um, very accidentally. Um, and so I've, you know, remained very grateful to her for my whole career that she took me aside and kind of translated that for me um, so effectively. And it's meant that even when I've had feedback uh, in subsequent years that's been, you know, bluntly, sometimes very biased or, or uh, discriminatory, I always try to find the kernel of usefulness that's, that's within that and try to be empowered by it rather than disempowered by it. Um, and so that that's one of the examples I'd say where I was I was messing it up myself. Um, the organization I've been in, which I think was best at this kind of culture of empowerment was Monzo. Um, and that was very much led by um, Tom Blomfield, the, the CEO, 
because he genuinely believed that great ideas could come from anywhere. Um, and for instance, the, the gambling block that, that Monzo is quite famous for, um, lots of other banks have now copied where you can, um, you know, flick a switch and stop yourself being able to spend money at any kind of gambling or betting site. That came out of the, the vulnerable customers team at Monzo. Um, saying that this was a problem for some customers. They were trying to stop gambling. It was just too easy to spend spend money that way. And they, together with some UX researchers and designers and some engineers, figured out that it needed to be really easy to turn on, but more friction to turn it off. And so you can turn mm. the gambling block on with literally uh, you know, one tap in the app, but in order to turn it off, you have to talk to a human and you have to wait 24 hours. And that was based on research that they went and did about addiction and how uh, falling off the wagon happens. And so same way as an alcoholic might make sure there's no booze in the house. So they have to take that action of going to the shop and buying more. And that's easier to stop themselves than to just stop themselves going to the cupboard and grabbing a bottle of vodka. Same kind of thing happens with that kind of gambling. And that was just one example. There are many of the features that are in the Monzo app that came from not, you know, not from the chief product officer or from me as CTO or Jonas, who's the, the founder CTO, who's who's now back in the, the CTO's seat, but from people in customer operations, people, um, engineers on the ground, you know, and, and I think it was a, a sense or a belief that great ideas could come from literally anywhere in the company. And there had to be a way to bubble those up and, and give them a chance to actually be built um, that, that really pervaded the, in, the entire culture at Monzo that was really, really positive. Those are fantastic examples. And I love particularly that you were immediately putting into practice the idea of talking about your own vulnerability first by an example where you you had had to learn something. It reminded me a lot of um, reading Andy Grove's book on high output management, where he, he took because he was the CEO of, of Intel, maybe he still is actually, I don't know. As the CEO of Intel, I think people expected him to be constantly sort of stressing around making these high power decisions. And he estimates that's, you know, some tiny fraction of his work. And actually, most of what he's doing is going around listening and kind of nudging, that's his word for it, that he's sort of maybe gently persuading people or gently suggesting a different direction rather than really pushing anyone in a different direction and I, I found that interesting because I suppose I assumed in a business like that where you know costs of bad mis costs of mistakes I think are a lot higher than the typical software business it's much harder to reverse decisions I think if you're dealing in hardware and, and factories all the time that he still seems to be describing a culture where at least the people around him are empowered and he's not kind of micromanaging yeah. One of the fundamental realities, though, about management is you can't be more expert than the people that you're looking after for very long at all. If the last time you were coding every day was two years ago, our industry moves fast enough that you're not smarter than them in the day to day work anymore. And believing that you are is both, you know, <laughs> arrogant and uh, tragic and probably you're on a hiding to nowhere <laughs> because you you just can't you can't be good at the practice of managing 
and stay just as good as a hands-on technical person as you used to be. And I'm sure that at, at Intel, that's true of electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, the chip designers, and, and everybody else as well. Like you, you may well have an understanding for that work because you might have done it once, but your you know, active knowledge of exactly how to do that job better than people on the ground is very unlikely to be there unless you've been completely neglecting this leadership and uh, a management role that now should be occupying a lot more of your attention and a lot more of your time. Completely. And realising that those people know better than you do how to do that bit of the job will actually free up your time to, to focus more on the management role that you should be doing. Hi everyone, Howell here. Mary and I continued this conversation for a while and we thought it was so useful and so packed with interesting nuggets that we've decided to split the episode into two. So this is the end of the first part, but join us again next time for the second part where we'll be talking more about the idea of feedback and how important that is in empowerment and how you can give feedback effectively.